So as we've looked at this text uh, over the last, before Christmas, we were looking at the giving to the needy in, in chapter 6 and forward, and now we're on prayer. One of the things that we noticed is that these are certain duties and certain spiritual practices that Jesus assumed would be regular, regular in the Christian life. In uh, chapter 6, verse 5, we see that Jesus assumes that all who truly follow him, all who claim to be believers in his name, will pray. Look at it again in chapter 6, verse 5. And when you pray. Not if you pray, but when you pray. See, Jesus understood that for us as believers, prayer is key to the Christian life. Prayer is like blood to the body. Prayer is like oil to the vehicle. It's essential. And for anyone, anyone, to claim that they love God and at the same time in, in, avoid engaging in or practicing the regular discipline of prayer is foolish and or self-deceived. Because prayer is vital to our relationship with the Lord. Prayer is indispensable for our growth up into the image of Christ. Prayer is crucial to the revealing of our dependence, our total dependence upon our good and gracious and all-powerful God. And so in this section of the text, Jesus, uh, from verse 5 to 8, which we looked at a few weeks ago, in that section of the text, Jesus had given a number of principles to follow in our prayer life. Just uh, in, in terms of quick recap, the first of them was in chapter 6, verse 1. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. Beware of ever Beware of the ever-present temptation to perform your spiritual duties, to perform your acts, your spiritual responsibilities for the purpose of being seen or noticed or applauded by other people for these obediences. See, this is what the Pharisees and the religious leaders of the day, they surrendered to this impulse and sought for themselves the honor and the exaltation and the glory that belongs only to God, that rightly belongs only to God himself. Instead, Jesus taught in verse, chapter 6, verse 6, when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. So if you are tempted to raise your stock in the eyes of others, if you are tempted to redirect the flow of praise and exaltation from God to ourselves or to yourself by your performance of spiritual duties publicly within the sight of others, hear the words of Jesus here. Go into your room, shut the door, and pray in secret. Let your communications be with to God, with God, be private. Let them be between you and Him. Witnessed and known only by him. See, the Puritans, like we learned a few weeks back, called this secret prayer. And they insisted that this secret private prayer is perhaps the only exercise that distinguishes a true believer from a hypocrite. Right? Because the hypocrite will always do their good deeds in sight of others to be seen by others, but the true believer will go into private prayer and pray to the Lord where nobody can see. And not only are we commanded to beware of practicing our righteous deeds before others to be seen by them, 
and exhorted to pray privately if this is your temptation. But Jesus also begins to exhort us and help us to know how to pray. He sets out some rules and realities for our prayer life. Look at verse chapter 6, verse 7. Do not heap up empty phrases like the Gentiles do. For they think that they will be heard for their many words. The idea is, remember who it is that we are praying to. We are praying, when we pray, to God who is in heaven. God, the Holy One, the Righteous One, the All-Powerful One. And this is in direct contrast to the Roman way of praying to the pagan gods. You see, in Roman paganism, the time into which Jesus preached the sermon, the Gentiles believed that prayers held some sort of magical quality. If they could say the right words or make the proper incantation or calculate their words well enough or shrewd enough or if they repeated their words enough times, if they were loud enough, if they were passionate enough, the pagan gods would be compelled to act on their behalf. And so in the system of paganisms, paganism, prayer was actually a way by which you could manipulate the gods into doing what you wanted them to do. But that's not the case for the Christian. That's not the case for those of us who believe in the one true God. Prayer for us is not some sort of magical incantation. It's not some sort of set of magical words that move God to act on our behalf. No. As Jesus declared in verse 8, look at it, chapter 6, verse 8, your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. For the believer... Prayer is not a set of magic words designed to cause God to act against his better judgment for us. No, prayer for the Christian, for the believer in Christ, is our recognition of dependence upon the God who knows what we need before we ask him. It is our running to him for comfort. Proper prayer is a signal and primary proof of the fact that we trust in his good and perfect will. And it's for this reason that we avoid the heaping up of empty phrases. We avoid the temptation to believe that our flowery words or our verbosity or our eloquence carry any currency with the Lord. You see, what may sound impressive to you and me does not sound impressive to the Lord. So in prayer, we leave off the pretense and we simply go to our Father in trust. Now, while our flowery words are not impressive to the Lord, this doesn't mean that we ought not to take care of and measure our words when we do come to Him in prayer. When we approach the Lord in prayer, we ought never to speak in our prayers with no thought behind what we're saying or to use many useless and purposeless words in His presence. We are not to come into prayer babbling on and on and repeating meaningless things. When we enter into the presence of the Lord in prayer, when we approach the Lord to address Him, we ought to seriously consider every word we utter before the Lord because we are uttering them to God. And thoughtless babble equals heartless prayer, and heartless prayer is an offense to the Lord. 
So whereas the pagans of Jesus' day thought that the gods would hear and answer them because of their many words, we are exhorted to remember and recognize that our Father in heaven knows what we need before we ask him. Which begs the question, if the Lord already knows, then why pray? If we are not informing the Lord of anything new, if we aren't striving to move God's hand as though he were reluctant or hesitant to do what is best for his children, then why are we praying? And the great reformer John Calvin gave what I think to be one of the great answers to this question, saying to this, we pray to seek him, that's God, to exercise faith in him, to meditate on his good promises and person, to pour out our cares and anxieties on him in trust and knowledge that he is our caring and attentive father. So according to Calvin, there is, when we pray, it is to seek God, it is to exercise faith in God, it is to meditate. As we speak the words, we're meditating on the promises of God given to us as well. And in prayer, we're pouring out our cares and pouring out our anxieties upon the Lord. In prayer, we are showing our trust and our knowledge of a certain set of facts that He is our caring and attentive Father. In other words, prayer builds our faith. Prayer grows our faith because God already knows it all, doesn't he? He already knows what you require and what I require before we even, the the first words flow out of our lips in prayer. Prayer is not us communicating some new information to God that he didn't know 10 minutes ago. It's not some technique for us getting what we want from him against his better judgment. No, prayer is our expression of love for, trust in, dependence upon him who we know and love as Father. And so Jesus, in our text, teaches the people how to pray. He teaches us how to pray and models for us a well-thought-out, a well-organized, weighty prayer of trust and confidence in the Father. Every word of this prayer carries tremendous weight and tremendous import and tremendous meaning. There, is, there are no empty phrases. There is nothing frivolous here. It is simply trusting and honoring and exalting God. And the prayer here, spoken by Jesus as an example for us, has become one of the most famous passages in Scripture, right? To believers and non-believers alike. Even non-believers can quote this Almost verbatim. In fact, some of us can remember, can even remember the days when we prayed this in school. When every morning in our public schools, it would come blaring out over the loudspeakers and we'd, we'd pray it. I, I was on the tail end of that practice. I think as a culture, it was put, uh, an end came to the Lord's Prayer in our public schools when I was heading into grade three or grade four. And as you look at the prayer in chapter 9 or verse 9 and forward, you'll see that the prayer itself is actually quite easy to follow and quite well structured. There is an opening address to the Lord. You see that in verse 9. 
our Father in heaven. And that opening address is then followed by six petitions. The six petitions we will look at in the coming weeks, or week, week, I don't know exactly yet, we'll see. Um, The first three of them relate to the glory and the sovereignty and the will of God. You see that, right? The first petition is, hallowed be your name. The second petition is, your kingdom come. The third petition is, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then there's a second set of three petitions that relate to everything we require for our physical and spiritual lives. The first of the second set is, give us this day our daily bread. The second is, forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And the third is, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. So it's a pretty well thought out, well structured prayer with opening address, uh, three petitions relating to the sovereignty and will of God, three petitions related to our requirements for physical and spiritual life. Now, this morning, we're going to focus on the first four words of the prayer. And we're going to note three wonderful realities that we ought to keep in mind as we approach the Lord in prayer. Look at the text again. Our Father in heaven. And you notice three things there. Three things. Not three things. First, He is our Father. Meaning, we who believe in Christ enjoy a special, unique, and privileged relationship with God. The second thing we're going to look at today is that He is our Father which reveals the closeness and the affection of our relationship with God. And the third thing we'll look at today is that He is our Father in heaven, which reminds us that God is also transcendent and holy and ought to be appreciated as such. And so when we pray, we are inspired and comforted by the realities of the truths that we speak in our prayers. These four words are a tremendous inspiration, a tremendous set of truths that bring us great comfort in the God that we pray to. And so Jesus began this example, this model for well thought out and appropriately weighty prayer with this short yet stunning opening address beginning with our Father in heaven. Now to whom does this our refer Well, let's just make it clear from the outset that it does not refer to all people. To be sure, God is God over all. He is God over all people. He is God over all creation. He is the sovereign Lord over the entirety of existence. He is the rightful King of all to whom every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, but not every person will be named his child. And not every person can or will name God as their father. While we see in our uh, society today many loving this idea of God as universal father to all people, this concept is actually foreign to Scripture. And there's a couple of explicit examples, one of which comes as Jesus, in conversation with the Pharisees, who were the self-righteous religious leaders of the day, he rebuked them, saying to them in John 8, 44, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. So the hour 
the O-U-R, the hour that opens the prayer in, the, in, in, the, in this Sermon on the Mount here, is a prayer that is limited to the children. And the children are those who truly believe in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, who by grace, through faith in Him, are saved from both the penalty and the power of sin. And the Apostle John made this abundantly clear in his gospel in John chapter 1, verse 12, when he, said, when he wrote, to all who did receive Him, that's Jesus Christ, to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. So you see, the right to become a child of God, to name God as Father, is given by those to given to those who receive Jesus Christ, to those who believe in the name of Jesus Christ. And Father is a deeply personal relationship. You see, a father is only father, in this sense, to their sons and daughters, whether biologically or by adoption. So the point here is that not everyone can correctly or truly call God their father. Not everyone who thinks that God is their father actually has God as their father. But only those who truly receive and truly believe in the name of Jesus Christ. God is not father to all people. This is a right that is given. This is a privileged relationship that we enter into by grace through faith. Christ rightly relates to God as father. And the hour here, the O-U-R in here, refers to all who are in Christ by grace through faith in him. So from the outset, what we learn is that true prayer True and and right prayer to God can only be made by those who belong to Him, those for whom God is Father, the hour of the text. So that's the first thing we see. He is our Father. And the second thing we see is that He is our Father. Stress on the word Father. So to all who do, in fact, trust in Jesus Christ for salvation, here is a wonderfully stunning, wonderfully amazing, wonderfully wonderful truth. God is your Father. Now, we can take a step back and recognize that the Father relationship can mean different things to different people. And depending on your relationship with your own earthly Father, the idea of God as Father might be either wonderful as the memories you possess of your father are precious and wonderful, while for others, they endured terrible, cold, distant, and even abusive relationships with their earthly fathers. Know this, all earthly fathers, unlike our father in heaven, are fallible, imperfect and prone to sin. And when Scripture refers to God as our Father, we are called to see in Him the perfect ideal of fatherhood. Everything our earthly fathers ought to have been, everything a real father is supposed to be. I mean, we as fallible fathers do the best that we can, but we in no way, shape, or form measure up to the fatherhood of God. When God is referred to as Father, we are to understand that He is the perfect picture, the perfect pattern of fatherhood. God is Father. He's never too busy to lend an ear to your petitions. 
He's always ready to receive you into His presence to comfort you, to lavish His love on you. He is actually interested in you, interested in your trials, in your difficulties, in your needs. And as you talk with Him in prayer, He listens to you. He knows what's best for you. He knows what's best for us. Our Heavenly Father provides for us, and when needed, He disciplines us in love, like any truly good father does. And the author of Hebrews makes this point clear. In Hebrews chapter 12, he wrote this, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by Him, for the Lord disciplines the one He loves and chastises every son whom He receives. We have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. They disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But He, but God, disciplines us for our good, and here's why, and listen to this, this is important, that we may share His holiness. You see, the Lord seeks and works for your best if you are His child, and He delights in your sharing in His holiness if you are His child. For some of you, your father, your earthly father was absent, disinterested, unsupportive, but it is not the case with your heavenly father. He wants you. He loves you. He is for you. Scripture makes clear the lengths that he went to redeem you and to secure you and to adopt you into the household of faith. God wasn't ho-hum about securing your salvation. If you are his child this morning, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, he knew you before you were born. He sent his son to seek you and to save you, and he has given his spirit to you to increase your joy and your growth up into his image. And Jesus right now has gone to prepare a place for you so that where he is, you might also be with him for eternity. And in the now, while we are here on earth, God is close to you as a father, tenderly caring for you, hearing your petitions and your prayers. You, as a child of God, are given the privilege of approaching him with boldness, yet reverence. And you know this, you ought to know this, your heavenly father can be trusted with your life. Trusted to care for you as his child. Trusted with your deepest confidence and knowledge that he will never leave you. He will never forsake you. He will never betray you. But in all things, he is seeking your ultimate good. That God is the one who is your father also means that he is powerful and he is mighty to accomplish all of his purposes in you and for you. He is powerful to protect you from everything outside of His will for you. This is an amazing development. It's a development that we probably, perhaps, don't appreciate as much as we should because for us, the concept of God as Father is relatively commonplace. We open up every prayer, rightly, by saying things like, Heavenly Father... However, the concept, this concept, this idea of God as Father over you, the individual, is actually relatively new. While there are instances in the Old Testament of God being described as Father, they are few and far between and always refer to Israel corporately. Israel as a nation was God's son. 
Two examples occur near the end of Isaiah's prophecy. For example, Isaiah 63, verse 16. For you are our father. Though Abraham does not know us and Israel does not acknowledge us, you, O Lord, are our father. Our redeemer from of old is your name. And in Isaiah 64, verse 8, we read, But now, Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay, and you are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. In each of these instances, it is clear that Isaiah understood God's relationship to corporate Israel as special and unique in the world. To know and to claim God as Father in Israel revealed his special and unique bond with them as a nation. But this concept of God as perfectly loving father to the individual was relatively unheard of throughout Jewish history, even up, and up into the 10th century, A.D. As far as I can tell, at no time in Jewish history do we hear of any individual Jews addressing God as father until the 11th century, except with one most notable exception, Jesus Jesus constantly and consistently referred to God as his father. And the Jewish leaders actually sought to kill him for it, charging Jesus with blasphemy. The first instance of this calling God his father is found in John 5, as Jesus healed the man at the pool of Bethesda on the Sabbath, telling him in John 5, 9, get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed, and he walked. And this drove the Pharisees mad angry. Because in their mind, the picking up of one's mat on the Sabbath and walking with it in his hand constituted work, according to their convoluted and rather intricate system of defining rest and work on the, on the Sabbath. And this was therefore forbidden. But Jesus, as the creator of the Sabbath, Jesus, the one in whom we find our true rest, disagreed with and challenged these burdensome extra-biblical rules that had been foisted upon the people by these religious leaders. And so these same religious leaders persecuted Jesus for his works and persecuted Jesus for his miraculous healings. He, they persecuted him for, him, for his telling uh, the healed man to get up and take his mat and walk. And Jesus responded by saying this in John chapter 5, verse 17. My father is working until now, and I am working. And because of this claim to relationship from the lips of Jesus, because of this claim that God is my father, John 5.18 tells us the Jews sought all the more to kill him because he was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So you see, Christ is, in fact, the unique, one-of-a-kind Son of God. And strictly speaking, it is only Jesus who can legitimately claim such sonship. However, the blessing of trusting Jesus for salvation is that because of His sin-bearing, sin-atoning, sin-defeating death, because of his perfectly sinless, righteous life applied to all who believe, because of his resurrection, showing the completed work and the acceptance of his work by the Father, because of his ascension to the right hand of God the Father, where he now sits and being seated is a sign that his work is final and done. 
Because the Father and the Son sent the Holy Spirit to live in all who believe. And because of all of these and more wonderful spiritual truths, all who believe in him are now placed in Christ. And as a result of being in Christ, we are granted the status of sons along with Christ, with all of the attendant rights and privileges and blessings of that status. You see, by nature, by our nature apart from Christ, the scripture, scripture has many things to tell us. We are by nature children of the devil apart from Christ. We are by nature, according to Ephesians 2 verse 3, children of wrath. And God is not our father. But in Christ, by grace, we are adopted into the family of God. In Christ, we become sons and daughters of the Most High God. This is a monumental blessing. In Christ, the Holy Spirit lives in us and we are all transformed from child of wrath to an heir in our Father's kingdom. We are all transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of our loving Father. And the Apostle Paul wrote of this blessing in Galatians chapter 4, verses 6 to 7, when he said, Because you are sons... God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father! So then, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. This fatherhood of God is also referred to by the Apostle John as a great love that is given to, a great love that is lavished upon us. In 1 John 3, verse 1, we read, See what kind of love the Father has given us. That word given could be also, depending on your translation, lavished upon. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, has lavished upon us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. So when you pray, Our Father to know God as Father and to remind us that God is Father as we approach Him in prayer, to remember this aspect of our relationship with Him in prayer inspires the heat and the fervency of our prayers. This knowledge of God as our Father stimulates the confidence of our prayers before Him. It sparks hope and expectancy of His answering our prayers. It excites the knowledge that He, as our loving, caring, tender Father, will always do what is best for you and always do what is best for me, will always do what is best for His children, and His ear is inclined to hear us. Never overlook the importance of that word. The New Testament goes to great lengths to reveal to us that God actually is Father. It is the primary way that the designation the New Testament uses for God. Over 400 times in the New Testament, God is referred to as Father. Never overlook the wonder and the blessing of these simple yet profound words. And when we pray and we we use the word Father in our prayers, remember the weight of that concept. Remember the import of what it means. Now, the truth of God's fatherhood is one most wonderful side of the coin. But without the other side, humans in our weakness, humans in our frailty, in our proneness to self-deception, 
can and sometimes do abuse this aspect of God's relationship to us, pressing it further than it should go. And so in order to ensure that we always remember to honor God as our Father and always remember that we ought to honor God appropriately, Jesus spoke two more little words of extreme importance as he continued his example of prayer. So first, we looked at the fact that God is our Father. Second, we looked at the fact that God is our Father. And now we look at the fact that God is our Father in heaven. See those two little words? Our Father in heaven. While we as his children revel in and glory in and wonder at this relationship with God as Father, we must also remember that he is in heaven. While we approach God as children to a Father in bold confidence, bursting with joy in the knowledge that our relationship with him is one of great love and great affection, his being our Father in heaven reminds us, commands us, exhorts us to keep ourselves from approaching him flippantly, casually, or carelessly. His residing in heaven teaches us that God, while he is our loving father, he is not our chum. He is not our pal. We are not his peers. We are not his equal. That our father is in heaven educates and instructs us. All things are subject to his rule. All that exists, he holds in his hand, arranging and disposing according to his good and sovereign plan. In fact, the Old Testament writers often referred to God's abode in heaven as a way of accentuating and underscoring his unquestionable authority over all things, his holiness, his supremacy, his transcendence. That God is transcendent means uh, he is incomparable. He is unparalleled and unmatched in power. His rule is total and complete. We see it, for example, in Psalm 115.3, where the psalmist wrote this, Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. The phrase here is also used to stop. In the Old Testament, it's also used to inhibit or to stop any frivolous, thoughtless, or irreverent approach to the Lord. One of my favorite texts, Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 1 to 2, we read this. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that what they are doing is evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. So according to King Solomon, the idea that, or the fact that God is in heaven ought to add weight to everything one does in their approach to God. Our Father in heaven is separate and distinct from all his creatures. He is not one like us, it is a dangerous position to find ourselves in to think that God is like us, to think that God loves what we love, accepts what we accept, hates what we hate. Listen, God is not like us. He does not conform himself to us. He does not conform to our cultural, ever-changing cultural viewpoints. No, God is and remains inflexibly holy. As he declared in Psalm 50, verses 19 to 22, 
says this, You give your mouth free reign for evil, and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. These things you have done, and I have been silent. I hear is God. I have been silent. You thought that I was one like yourself. But now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. Mark this then, you who forget God, lest I tear you apart and there be none to deliver. Do you see the terrible judgments that befall those who forget God's holiness? To forget that God is in heaven is what tends to lead us to the breaking of God's laws, with that which tends to lead us to the disobedient life. To think of God as one like ourselves in such casual terms will, if we don't repent of such wickedness, bring about his judgment and rebuke as he lays the charges of our sin before us. This is always the precursor to a sin-riddled life. The idea that God's holiness is flexible, moldable, shapeable, that we can somehow can believe that we can convince God that the sin that we so long for is acceptable. God is not like us. God remains who he, he, who he is. He does not change. He is holy. He is righteous. He is just. And when we come to him thinking of him flippantly, come to him thinking that he conforms himself to us rather than remaining holy and in heaven, we get ourselves into a lot of trouble. So we must recognize that God is not one like ourselves, nor ought we to assume that he is. God reserves all the sovereign rights to answer all petitions and to dispense judgments and to rebuke anyone in all of creation according to his perfect will, perfect will and his holy purpose. God is to be revered. God is to be feared. And as we approach him in prayer, we remember that he is the one who is in heaven and we remember who and what we are. Dust of the earth. And as we remember that we are the mere dust of the earth, what does this do? How does this help us? It amplifies the blessing and the privilege that we have as adopted into the family of God and now being able to call him our father. Imagine that. The dust of the earth is given the right to call God father. The very first line The opening address of this prayer that Jesus models for us reveals our God to be Father. Personal, imminent, meaning close at hand, tenderly caring for us, knowing exactly what we need before we ask it, who numbers the hairs on our head, who watches over us ready to hear our prayers and petition. And we also see in this very same line, Our Father is transcendent and holy. He is set apart. He is above us. He is different. He is worthy of our fear, our honor, our praise, and our worship. And it is this Father in heaven who is the direct object of our prayers. It is Him to whom we pray. And so to remember this, to remind ourselves that God is in heaven, ought also to keep us from the idolatrous mistakes that we read of in Romans chapter 1. 
In Romans chapter 1, we read of those who suppressed the knowledge of God revealed to them, clearly perceived by them in what has been created. You see, the people in Romans 1 suppress the truth of God precisely because He is in heaven. Humanity left to itself wants nothing more than raw, unchecked power, right? We want to throw off any and all lordship over our lives. We despise the idea of submitting ourselves to another, of conforming our lives to the commands of another who is more powerful than ourselves, to someone outside of ourselves. We despise the idea of thinking that someone else knows what is better for my life than I do. And the God who is in heaven is just that, the one outside of ourselves with authority over us to whom we submit and conform our lives. And our flesh will constantly rail against this reality. So when we pray to our Father in heaven, it's a consistent reminder of this fact that our lives are lived for Him. And we refuse by this constant reminder of the fact that He is in heaven to exchange the glory of the immortal and all-powerful God for images. We refuse and reject to easy to be manipulated and controlled by the, the ways of the world. No, we recognize that our loving Father is indeed in heaven, close to us, and at the same time, absolute King and sovereign over us. See, God is not on earth. He's not among us in any sort of equal sense. He's not made up of the stuff on earth. He is not in the trees. He is not the animals. He is not our cultural viewpoints. He is completely distinct, entirely other, over and above. And to Him, we submit the entirety of our lives and are reminded to do so every time we pray, Our Father in heaven. Or... Heavenly Father. That our Father is in heaven encourages our confidence in His power to accomplish His good purposes in, through, and by our prayers. That our Father is in heaven is a constant reminder to us as we pray that He is the one to whom we submit. He is the one that we seek to obey, honor, and exalt with our lives. So in these four little words, in this opening address to the prayer, uh, the, the Lord's Prayer, much is being communicated. We realize that in our prayers, we understand God as our Father, close to us, walking with us, concerned for us. And at the very same time, we call to mind that God is in heaven, holy, transcendent, over us, and perfect. And so my exhortation to you this week, as you pray and as you commune with the Lord, is that you be reminded of these two realities every time you approach Him and enter into His presence. May your prayers this week inspire comfort, confidence, and trust as you recognize and understand that God is your Father. And may you be inspired to increased obedience to him as you recognize in your prayers that God is in heaven, worthy of all exaltation, worthy of all glory, and possessing all power. Amen and amen. Father, we thank you 
and we praise you for being our Father in heaven. We praise you for the wonderful truth that you are near to us, that you love us, your children, that you listen to us, that you walk with us, that you know every detail of our lives. You know what we need. You know our rising. You know our sitting down. You know our thoughts. You know everything, and you work all things together for those of us who love you. You are such a good Father. We thank you for revealing this wonderful truth in Scripture that we might be comforted by this reality. We also praise you that you are our Father who is in heaven, all-powerful, majestic, supreme, holy, wonderful, the one who is able to accomplish his good will for his children. So Lord, this, I pray that you would let this inspire confidence in all of us that everything you have promised in Scripture as blessings to your children, you have the power to accomplish and are accomplishing and will accomplish for us. I pray for uh, our encouragement with these words. And I pray all of this in the name of the Savior who made it all possible, who secured it for us, Jesus Christ. Amen.